0: So hello, hello and um, today we are joined by a guest who I'm so delighted has agreed to join us as not only as he had a remarkable tennis journey, he was there right at the start of my tennis journey as he was my first coach when I was a junior growing up in Cumbria. So I think it's fair to say my mum is more excited about this episode than any episode so far. (laughs) He's been involved in tennis for over 30 years. As a player, a master coach, a national coach for the LTA, he's now national manager for the LTA's university programme. And if that's not enough, he's also one of the world's leading experts on momentum, that elusive force that when it's with you, things really go your way. Momentum in tennis, but he's also done a lot of work in other sports like football. So much to talk about, lots of questions to the ready. So welcome to the show, Mr. Alistair Hyam.
1: What a welcome! Thanks, Rob. Thanks very much.
0: Great, great to great to have you have you on this uh, podcast. But let's go right back to the start. Um, how did your tennis journey begin? You know, when do you remember first having a racket in your hand?
1: Well, I think I was mostly football to begin with at school. And then it was the fact that in 19, well, I won't say when, because I mean, you've already described 30 years ago and that's already enough information for the uh, listeners. But uh, Wigton Tennis Club in Cumbria, they built some new courts. A guy called Tom Dolan left some money and they built some which were, well fantastically shiny new courts at the time. So I we went down, played tennis there. I think my parents, mum and dad, were very influential in getting me to play and they'd got me playing a little bit at uh, the park and then moved from the park to the club and played non-stop, basically. Loved it.
0: Did your mum and dad play or were they, they, they were keen for you to play, but were they actual tennis tennis people?
1: Um, no, they were. I mean, I think my mum played a bit, uh, at her club in Southport where she grew up. My dad was more of a badminton player, but no, you would describe them as, um, you know, intermediates, really. Yeah. So sort of yeah. wouldn't be playing competitively at all.
0: Yeah. But yeah, football as well. So football, that was the early age sport, was it? You were right into that.
1: Yeah. The football was captain of the school football team in the primary school. And, uh, you know, really enjoyed football, really got into it, really enjoyed the team aspect of it. It was a goalie originally, then a defender. Not great positions, but I, you know, it was kind of, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I, was I guess, the backbone of the primary school team. And then when we moved to secondary school team. Um, you know, I think tennis took over then, uh, particularly, uh, you know, probably from the age of 12, I would say.
0: Carlisle United fan?
1: Yeah, big Carlisle United fan. Yeah, spent ages watching them.
0: Come on, I think you're the first Carlisle United fan we've had on this show. I'm going to send it to some of my <laughs> mates up there, so I've got to give Carlisle United a mention. Um, so tennis-wise, you know, you're starting to pick it up and, and play more. You know, what age did you start playing for for Cumbria?
1: I remember getting invited to training, Cumbria County Training and that was a big moment uh, and that the invitation came from the county coach Kath Messenger at the time and was, it was an envelope, came in a form of an envelope left in the clubhouse at Wigton Tennis Club addressed to the little red-headed boy at Wigton. And there was, a, <laughs> there was an invitation to county training in that. Now, luckily, I got to it before the very talented little red-headed boy, a week later, <laughs> <No, I'm joking. laughs> I think it was for me. And, um, yeah, so I started counter-training there. Counter-training was uh, not like now, six to a quarter minimum in Cumbria, indoor sports hall. And, yeah, I think probably started playing around under 14. Yeah, under 14 is when I represented Cumbria.
0: There's, um, there's something a bit Harry Potterish, isn't there, about that little envelope turning up? At- I can <laughs> picture that club now. I love that. And I've got to say there was definitely some, some letter writing prowess in Cumbrian Tennis Association because one of my proudest moments to this day was in assembly. They started this sort of slightly gushing uh, speech about somebody and I was thinking, oh, I wonder who this is. And then um, they called me up to the front to get my county colours. And, and it was one of my, you know, just like, wow, man, I was I was so happy. And, yeah. And so those little things they can do—it's quite interesting, isn't it—that that awarding of county colours. I mean, for me, it was a real highlight.
1: Yeah, and 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 so it should be. I mean, if you're in a—I don't know—chatting to somebody at a, an event, and they turned out to be a county golfer, or they've run for the county, you know, fifteen hundred meters. You know, we're very impressed, and we should be. And playing cricket for the county, you can earn a living playing cricket for the county. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's no, I don't. I think in tennis, we maybe downplay that as an achievement a little bit. It's a, it's a terrific achievement to play for your
0: county. Come on. Now then, so tournaments-wise, I mean, I remember my early years playing tournaments at Big Cumbria. Were, were, were you entering tournaments? Were you playing a lot of tournaments when it, it got more serious at 13, 14?
1: I think so. Around the northwest, around the northeast, um, probably didn't go south enough, but played a lot around Lancashire area, where my mum and dad are from um played in northeast t side used to have a indoor center and played in scotland a lot as well but i think probably from the age of well, under 14 and 16 under 18 it would increase but you always had to drive a long way to play and i think half the i think actually those long journeys helped because you had a long time to sort of prepare for the match and actually reflect on the match so although we didn't get a lot of matches they kind of meant more when you got them
0: it's a really interesting one that isn't it it's something that Ashley Broomhead um and I know he's a good friend of yours was talking about the right environment and and uh, Yasmin Clark was talking about how the best tennis comes when you're at your happiest and actually that time in the car with some music on and preparing it's a it's an uh, adventure isn't it
1: yeah it is an adventure and you look forward to it and you look back on it and I think that's one of the you know the great things you've got to make time for in life is to look forward to things and look back on things because life particularly with the phones and the mobile and technology now it's a race the next thing the next thing the next thing and I think you have to actually take time and just look back on things uh and look forward to things as well
0: so so true so true proudest moments as a junior anything that that springs to mind mm, I, I don't know
1: pride is not something that I really relate to as a feeling I think enjoyable moments and yeah. you know I think there's a Uh, There's a phrase which I think is true, which is you'll discover when you arrive, the journey is the prize. And so it's not really the trophy you've got on the wall. It's, you know, on the wall, on on the bookcase. It's the journey to that trophy. It's the moments with your teammates. It's the moments that you came back. uh, You didn't think you were going to make it and you made it. It's the sights, smells, tastes of the tournament, if you like. Um, So I think probably winning... Winning the under fourteen open championships at Kendall was a big moment, yeah. but because you got in those days your BP badge, which was very very big. But I think uh, also county championships, county playing for the county under eighteen, really enjoyable. You know, and and the things you remember, you know, they're not the great winner so much. They're the kind of playing wink murder in the clubhouse when it's pouring down with rain or you remember particular bits of matches don't you but yeah. I don't think you sort of your pride is probably not something I, I don't sort of wander around feeling pride I just remember the great times
0: I think it's uh, a lovely way of putting it a really lovely way and as you were talking it, it reminded me of the, the Cumbrian trips I don't know if you went on them where well. we used to travel from Cumbria to Felixstowe in a minibus and uh, and they were the times I remember. Goodness only knows whether I won a match or not. <laughs> but I remember the times of those, you know, those friendships and and just as we said earlier, the adventures.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I don't think I ever went to Felixstowe, but uh, yeah, I remember. I remember all those kind of uh, moments and people. And of course, you know, tennis is fantastic. You make friends for life, don't you? So I'm still in touch with a lot of the, you know, the juniors I would know uh, from Cumbria
0: that's the thing you know right? and i think it, it's a theme through these podcasts and it's so wonderfully life-affirming that yeah you know the the core of it is a sport and playing a sport but it yeah. is those friendships that you make through the sport that just become your community become your friends your family you know it's uh that's what it's all about isn't it
1: mm, no 100 percent, and uh to be in touch with them. Um watch what they do see where they go stay in touch and yeah I mean I had a big birthday not too long ago and um and we didn't have a a, a big party, a series of events but had we had a big party it kind of came up with a list of about 200 names and 170 of them were from tennis
0: amazing absolutely brilliant so the move from junior to an adult I think it was around the first time I met you And I remember coming to Wigton Tennis Club, those shiny courts and not quite such a shiny uh, clubhouse stroke chalet uh, when I was uh, nine or 10, it must've been around 1983. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, so this must've been the start of your coaching career around there, was it?
1: I guess so, yeah. I mean, that would put me about 18 and um, yeah. So I think probably doing a little bit of coaching, parents, both teachers, had done my coaching qualifications early at 17 uh and I mean never really saw it as something I would do for life but certainly it was something that I was interested in and uh yeah I remember clearly you coming along I haven't changed a bit Rob <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and um every time I see your kids on Instagram as well I think oh yeah that's Rob oh. um so uh, yeah no brilliant brilliant days in Wigton and I've never heard that shed described as a chalet before thank you that's it. that makes it sound <laughs> a lot more
0: I remember the posters on the wall of it and stuff like that it was a, <laughs> yeah it's a luxurious shed anyway um, so I, and your work in life has largely involved tennis something I don't really know actually because never really spoke about it but how did that move away from Cumbria happen what was that what happened to, to make that journey
1: Um, well, I think I went to, I went away to university at Leeds. I played at Ilkley a lot and decided to base myself as a full-time player at Ilkley with Simon Ickringill for a couple of years, started to do more coaching as money was a requirement. And then I was offered, well, actually in Cumbria, I set up 13, eventually VW tournaments around Cumbria and from yes. that, I was recommended for a job as Nottinghamshire County Coach, and so moved to Nottinghamshire as Nottinghamshire County Coach. So that would be kind of the start of a proper paid—I say paid loosely because I thought it was—I was, I was full time, but I actually it turns out I was part time. Looking back, and um, and you know really got into it. But that was my first job in tennis, my first proper job, Nottinghamshire County Coach.
0: Nottinghamshire County Coach, and and I guess that's the kind of. Uh, You know, a lot of our guests are very much Derbyshire based, but even though there's a massive rivalry between Derby County and Nottingham Forest, uh, we're very friendly with a lot of our Nottingham tennis people, such as your good self. And and from there, yeah, Alistair, you, you ended up, you know, working. Did that then lead to the roles at the LTA?
1: So I did that role for five years and, um, in the middle of it, what I what I want, decided I wanted to do was to coach performance players. So I, I did a year of general coaching, and then I kind of decided I really enjoyed coaching players where you could see progress. I mean, I've always been interested in matches, always been interested in competitive uh, tennis, and the ones who wanted to play the matches. I decided I was going to focus on them. So I actually slimmed down the amount of people I was coaching significantly, and by that stage was already interested in. Uh, the national championships the county championships how to you know progress players along the continuum and been working with Keith Reynolds been working with Ashley as a player as a player with Keith and but as a player and a coach with Keith as well because uh, some of my players would go to him as well and wanted to try and understand how to improve them and so looked at what the top players were doing in the country and came up with the idea that if I did individuals and groups with the same players, same group of players, rather than just individuals, we could maximize the amount of hours that they played for a week. So instead of 10 people coming for one hour a week, if they came for 40 minutes and then all for the other 40 minutes or 45 minutes for the other 45 minutes came as a group, you know it went up exponentially how much tennis they could all play during the week. So I started to move to individual and group with a group of um, six to 10 individuals. uh, And I think six of them went on to play for Britain. And halfway during that uh, period, I was asked to be British captain under 16 by Richard Lewis, who went on to be chief executive of Wimbledon. And I guess from there, I was still Nottinghamshire County coach. And then I became national coach after probably two years of doing that team junior team captain role and that led to a full-time role with the LTA as a national coach
0: and I mean this is fascinating and and it's just so beautiful for me during this uh, downtime in tennis to be learning and this is this is learning for me and and the idea of doing that individual and the groups to kind of double the amount of time that the players are playing what sort of ages were, were the children was it a wide range was it younger was it more older ones or
1: well, I was backed a lot by Ian McCulloch at the county. who was county, county in charge of the county of Nottinghamshire as secretary. I say in charge, probably secretary of Nottinghamshire LTA at the time, uh, and he got some sponsorship, and that allowed us to do to select ten players who um, all went on to do fascinating things. Actually, not all in tennis. Um, one of them was Helen Richardson Walsh, who won a gold medal at the Olympic uh, hockey for the women. Another oh. was Dave Lindley, who went on to be uh, played badminton for Britain. Uh, but other players in there were uh, Helen Reesby, Jamie Drummond, Sarah Wright, Victoria Hall, Claire Carter, who's now doing very well in America, uh, Andrew Wakefield, who's in America. So there was a whole range of them. And there were different ages. Mark Powell was another. And they were able, we were able to have hitters for the younger ones and the older ones. So the youngest would be, I don't know, eight or nine, perhaps. And then the oldest would be 15, 16. So there would be a you know a range of people, but because we had this sponsorship, we could bring in some hitters. So even though they were they were different, they got on very well together. Uh, and if um, you know, this group of girls there, Hillary Hempstead, Victoria Hall, Helen Reesby, Sarah Wright, um, Claire Carter, they sort of were able to hit together. But then Sarah was a bit younger, or if Mark Powell or Jamie Drummond or Carol Drummond was able to Hit in with some of the older hitters, then they could all be on just two indoor courts as a group at the same time. And the age group didn't matter. We could work on similar things uh, in half court. I
0: love it. And I love, it really strikes me, uh, something that Ashley Broomhead talks about creating the environment. It sounds like the sort of algorithm for the environment is what you got right. You know, you you took players who wanted to play. You managed to get the funding to enable them to have better better play. Uh, It sounds like they were playing, you know, good amounts of times on court. How important for you was that create the environment?
1: Yeah, very, very important looking back. And I don't know where it came from. I I think it comes from a sort of a team spirit rooted probably with Mike Robinson as our county captain. And Mike Robinson, who you know has had no formal training being a team captain like so many county captains, um, got so many things right. And having done a lot of courses on leadership and team spirit and understanding it better, looking back on those days, just copying Mike, you could do far, far worse. And I think there was quite a lot of creativity in there, a lot of uh, humor in there, a lot of enjoyment of the journey in there, a lot of working for the future
0: and yeah they were great days to look back on and the days you see this is what this is what i'm loving about another thing i'm loving about doing these podcasts what you've just described when i worked uh, most recently in the carling team uh, so you know working on that brand team with a bunch of people it was like a family we were there for each other we would help each other we would do everything we you know we could to make things work there was a a creativity there. There was a, a passion there. It, 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 This is what makes winning teams. It's not just about a tennis situation, a corporate situation. This is what makes winning teams.
1: Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. It's all about people. It's other matter we're talking about yeah. players or teams or developing a sport it's always about people and the relationships have with each other and wanting to work for each other being on you know the side of players when they're losing uh, and looking out for the next move that they can make whether it's in their career these these are the all, all critical things this continuity and relationship aspect to it yeah i couldn't agree more
0: so national manager um i mean what what was that role about and, and how, was it enjoyable was it fun
1: yeah, it was fantastic traveling the world. I mean, I look back on it now and think I traveled with Federer for two years and I didn't recognize him. I couldn't pick him out. I see his name in all the things, in all the drawers, But, you know, in the Dow Federer, they were just players and you'd watch them and you'd watch a whole variety. But there was, you know, during that time, there was other names you were watching as well. So, you know, we should go back uh, and have a look <laughs> at yeah. little- you know, what they were doing at that stage. You'd come across them. You'd play some great players. I remember being on court, well, with the under-16 team a lot. That that, that was fantastic. And that taught me a lot about momentum and really uh, sparked my interest in it. Because, of course, you get to ch- talk to the players at the change of ends. And, yeah. you know, you can have a big influence in the match, but you learn what, from the other coaches. You learn from the players. You're travelling. You're understanding clay court tennis, perhaps more and more um and then you're understanding the training regimes the russians are under what the americans are doing you chat to the french coaches you understand that system so there is a whole range of experiences that are just fantastic and again great days to 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 look at and actually you don't always it's about you know looking back you don't always look back and think what was it you learned but no doubt it was a huge amount very quickly
0: yeah what an amazing, just diving straight in to learn, just must have been incredible and really interesting to hear that, you know, the Federer's and the Nadal's were there, but didn't, didn't massively stand out at the time. Was, was there a player who did, you know, was there a dominant player who you're like, oh, well, they're going to win that one again.
1: Bartoli was impressive, Marianne Bartoli, it was obvious she was going on to the top. She would stand halfway between the service line and the baseline and nail these incredible winners from service <laughs> returns. So she stood out. Dimitrieva stood out. I mean, if I, if I had time to think of it, Guillermo Correa, who went on to play the French Open. I remember um, Helen Reesby beating Meskina, who went on to win the French Open. Um, yeah. So there was there's a lot of standout players there. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it would be possible to say this was the most imp- impressive player. There was a lot of them.
0: Yeah. And how about the, the the players you worked with during this period? You know, if you if you think of everything, you know, talent, attitude, work ethic, uh, the whole lot. Were there any any names of the, the the British guys that you were working with and you thought, well, they just had everything.
1: Um. I, it's tough. I don't. I don't think anybody has everything. I think people. I think people go through stages with their commitment. I think they go through spurts of development. They. It's not all. Wow, that player worked really hard. You could always see it. At times, you go. Even with Andy Murray, you'd look at him and go, "Hmm, not sure." I remember uh, the French Open, and he was playing as he can do drop shot after drop shot after drop shot, and almost fiddling around. And it was hard to see how that was going to translate easily into the senior game. And of course, amazingly it did. Um, yeah. and you know, you look back cause Andy was around a lot of the time. Jamie Murray was around a lot of the time uh, as a Rover coach, they were Rover players. Um, and it's, you know, it would be really hard to put your money on who was going to come through. I remember Helen Reesby being very dedicated indeed. Uh, so right incredibly talented but you'd pick out different things for different people and you'd say well which is the winning formula and you try to grow people up in your mind at the time i remember trying to do it and see where they would be uh but it's an impossible game it's a really really difficult game and there's times when people work incredibly hard andy murray i don't think anybody worked harder than andy probably from the age of 17 um I don't think, you know, I mean, Yasmin Clark was very, very good. I coached Yasmin at a young age as well. She was a standout yeah. player for sure.
0: Yas um, he is amazing. It's actually, I chatted to Yas a couple of days ago and what a junior career Yas had. And Yas was talking about something fascinating. I've just been really listening. I just played it to our Stanley to say, just listen to this. And, and Yas won so much as a junior, yet... When we talked about that element she talked about the importance of learning to lose mm-hmm. and i, I just thought it was really interesting that you know she won so much but she yas was almost saying i wish i'd learned i wish you know i had lost a few more because you need to learn these things because when you go into the tour you're mm-hmm. gonna lose
1: yeah well that's it's, right i mean you know it's like uh, i remember him saying when he somebody Maybe it wasn't Henman, it was about Henman. Somebody described him as a loser, which is incredible for somebody who was four in the world and reached, was it five Grand Slam semifinals? I mean, basically, there's 121 players, sorry, 121, 128 players in Grand Slam. 127 of them are going to lose at some stage. So you've got 127 losers in a Grand Slam, if you look at it right <laughs> So, yeah, you better get used to losing and learn from
0: it. So true, learn from it. That's the important thing, and that's the point Yaz was making opportunities to learn you sometimes learn more on a court when you lose than when you win
1: yeah yeah 100 yeah yeah
0: um so but i mean by this time tennis parent um i know you know i know your two lads andy and johnny have both played county tennis what are, you, what are your tips for all the the tennis parents out there to help their children you know make the most of their tennis journeys
1: Whoa, it's tough I mean there's nothing more tough than being a tennis parent it's really hard and my heart rate never my heart rate never went higher than when watching those two play I mean never I've been on the side of international matches watched Helen Reesby be playing Justin Henan or Kim Kleisters. never never ever did it get over 300 <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a really tough so first of all empathy and respect to all tennis parents um, and I don't think coaches unless I' children themselves and watch them I don't think coaches can quite understand the, how difficult it is for parents try to keep perspective it's not that important whatever they're doing right now with their results is really not that important It's a tiny window of an opportunity to junior tennis the biggest stretch by far if they make it is senior tennis and therefore the rest is a learning journey and I mean, if I could have told myself that when I was younger, I wouldn't have listened for a start. And in fact, I, I do remember James Nelson's dad, who uh, Jimmy Nelson senior, I think he was called, uh, said, forget all this junior stuff. It doesn't make any difference. And he was a uh, junior academy manager for Newcastle United, I think. And he, he was very, very definite about that. And football is incredible at ignoring results and focusing on development um not the parents the coaches more than the tennis coaches actually because i think and i think i'm a little bit envious of football because their coaches get to work with a lot of seniors whereas our coaches are working with a lot of juniors and you can as a coach you can lose a little bit of perspective but as a parent you can definitely lose a lot of perspective and you can think that the ratings scheme or the ranking scheme whichever one it is is the most important because it looks like a ladder that you're going up and therefore logically you would think the quicker you go up the ladder the better and therefore the results with things riding on them whether you get into tournaments the indoor tournaments or selections or whatever it is you would think it was important it really isn't important what's important is to learn as you go through To look for tournaments where you get a two to one win loss ratio, because that will give them enough confidence to keep playing, but also challenge them enough. Uh, And to, to look at the game development, because a rating or a ranking ultimately is a description of your level. And if you focus on game development and your level goes up and this year you can hit a slice serve wide and attack to the backhand you couldn't last year if you can hit your second serve accurately and deeper to the backhand and you couldn't last year and you can attack short balls better which you couldn't last year guess what your rating is going to do guess what your ranking is going to do it's going to go up because it's a description of your standard so focus on game development keep perspective and look ahead
0: love it absolutely love it and and, uh, you know, as someone who's in this phase of a tennis parent, it's just, it's very cathartic to hear this, you know, this information. And I think it's so easy to get lost in in ratings and, you know, am I going to get in this tournament and all this stuff? And and actually, it is about that game development. That's what it's about, is developing the game. So, yeah, thank you for those wise words. I think we'll make sure we get those out to to, you know, a load of the tennis parents because, it, 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 i mean i've been on this tennis journey and i still find it very difficult but if you're new to the sport whoa you're in at the deep end
1: you really are and you need to look for things which are a signs of improvement and celebrate them and i think that's what appeals to me uh about momentum and the psychological tactical aspect of it you can find things within the battle within the battle of the match you can find elements of it, which you've never done before, almost like tests that you pass that you can actually be proud about. So if you've never uh, won a match having lost tiebreak first set and come back and won, you can identify that little battle within the overall war and you can celebrate that battle. And I think that's really, really important. You can find, you know, with the work we're doing now, we're trying to identify these battles within the war that you can celebrate having won even if you lose the war. And I think that's really critical for a positive development.
0: What a lovely way of putting it. Focus on the battles that you you can win within the war, even if you don't go on and win the war. Brilliant, and, and please, yeah, I mean, come on and talk to us about momentum. It, it's brilliant to, to be able to talk to you about this. Yeah, I mean, firstly, why did you get interested in it? I know we, we touched on it earlier, but and why is it so important?
1: Well, it goes back to Cumbria and Carlisle United and his parents. I mean, it links all of these things. So I remember, well, as Carlisle United, I used to go and watch, you know, 10, 11, 12. I mean, he used to get on the bus and go and watch and come back. My parents were quite happy for me to go. Uh, And, you know, Carlisle United fan, momentum is often against you. So the few times per season when momentum is four, you go, oh, what's that? That's interesting. And I remember one game, 3-1 down with 10 minutes to go, and they won 4-3. And that feeling in those 10 minutes stays with you for a very, very long time.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, so there's that. There is also watching a lot of Wimbledon as a boy in Cumbria, and the commentators would say things like, um, oh, he spotted the danger signs and raised his game. And I would think, what, what signs, what danger signs? Raised his game, why wasn't he playing at the top of his game already? And these questions would spark off really a lifetime of thought and interest and research. What does it mean to raise your game? What signs are they reading? How do you turn a match around? What's a turning point? Why are they talking about weathering the storm? Weathering the storm, under the cosh, what's a cosh? Plain sailing, what? Why are they using all these make hay while the sun shines? What are they talking about? Yeah. And, and what they're talking about, of course, is the flow of the match and things turning one way and turning another, uh, and the ebb and flow. And that's really, um, I you know I'm fascinated by the surge in momentum and how you can, you know, plot plan a surge in momentum or take advantage suddenly of a surge in momentum from a turning point and suddenly the match has a completely new complexion and you're playing a different match potentially it looks like you're a different player and you hear commentators say the real Serena Williams has turned up it looks like the person in the side net is not what they were um So it's this, it's all these, you know, all this intricate, uh, but quite straightforward, really, uh, way of looking at tennis in a new light. So you understand we're all in this together. We all have these feelings when momentum's against us and for us. We can all change it around or not change it around as we choose based on our reactions and tactics. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so that's really what it is, where it came from, Carl United, and listening to Tennis Parents listening to commentators, Carl United. And, and it came from Keith Reynolds saying, as a young coach, I'd always be talking after matches about percentages of first serves and attacking short balls and defending high when wide and all these things. And, and I'd always talk to the parents after the match. Cause I was, like you say, it was a family and would get on well with the parents and the children. And they not be talking the same language and it was Keith Reyes said why don't you ask them what they think of the match get some information and I asked them and they'd say she was going well until a hair bubble fell out or she was going well until that national coach turned up or it wasn't going well until his mate turned up on the next court or that bad line call happened again and it put him off and that's happened a lot yeah and so after sort of a number of months of talking to the parents, you kind of go, they ain't talking about forehands and backhands and percentage of first serve as much as they're talking about match events yes. and the emotional response and the focus and the good patches and the bad patches. And that really sparked interest as well.
0: It's fascinating because I think about, it makes me think about, I as a player, I knew that if somebody was ho- homing in on victory, and they started to think about the fact they were homing in on victory, that nerves could come in. And I was aware that in that match, that is an opportunity for me to switch the momentum. And never, I mean, I didn't have big shots, but I fought for every point I could fight for. And that if I could get it into their mind that if I mean if they'd had a match point, all the better. Because yeah. then the, then that's playing on the mind. And I'm thinking, fight, come on. And I guess that is that was my way of, of trying to trigger the the change in momentum
1: yeah brilliant and that's you know you've got turning points which come along out of the blue and then you've got predictable turning points match conditions if you like created by the scoring system and that's what you're describing there uh, and the potential for a double change in performance you getting better and getting you know uh, increasingly energized and them getting perhaps increasingly scared about losing the opportunity and losing the lead um and these all these things are definable and i guess a lot of them are connected to sports psychology as well so i've been working a lot with anna suarez who's a sports psychologist who's working at southampton football club at the moment and also worked in tennis for six years at btt academy in spain so knows a huge amount about tennis and football and you know we would talk a lot about the psychology of it and what you're describing there is really the ability to see an opportunity and not have your head in your, you know, down by your feet, you know, your head down, your shoulders down, looking inward, thinking you're about to lose. You're actually seeing it from a positive point of view, you yeah. perceiving an opportunity as opposed to perceiving a match slipping away. And that's the power of, uh, well, perception and, of course, psychology in general.
0: Come on. It's fascinating. And, and football-wise, it, I know you were just saying about Anna and Southampton. and, and By the way, just as a little story, when the, their manager took over, and I love it as a quote, he said that in his first press conference, the local newspaper said, can you guarantee Southampton will stay in the Premier League? And he went, if you want to gu- guarantee, go and buy a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> mm. you, you've done some work in football as well, of course.
1: Yeah, I think um, having written a book in tennis, um, it, it transferred into football, did a book with the FA, and that resulted in a number of clubs asking and, and going to give presentations from national level, Premier League level, championship level, and that, that continues now as well. So it's it's been fascinating looking at the difference between tennis as an individual sport and football as a team sport, but there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. There's some differences, some clear differences, but there's a lot of similarities.
0: And if there was a, I know it's incredibly difficult, but if there was a couple of sentences to, to sum up generally, be it a tennis coach, be it a football coach, be it a coach of whatever, how people can make the most of the opportunities that momentum present, is it possible to sum that up in a couple of sentences?
1: Well, of course, doing football is five hours, Rob. So uh, you're yeah. asking for 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think it's awareness. I think that probably you've got to start with awareness. If you aren't aware of it and your coach is saying, Did you not see that opportunity to turn it around? Or you're not thinking, How can I get out of here? What's my route to victory? Then that's probably, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots and lots of things could say, but you need to be aware of the journey of the match and understand it. Um, And we spent a long time writing an e learning program, and the first section is understanding it. We'd like, there's three sections. There's three courses, in fact, understanding momentum, then understanding how to control momentum, and then controlling momentum. And we'd love just to put out the control momentum, but actually, until you understand phrase-like momentum, the journey of the match, turning points, until you understand the whole idea and you start to think of it in a different way, it's very difficult to get to the hub of it uh, and to yeah. control it, yeah.
0: And if people want to find out more, I mean, I think, you know, it is such a factor we know it's such a factor in whether you how you perform in sport if people do want to find out more coaches out there where would they go Alistair
1: um we've got a website momentuminsport.com and that you can link in through you know to find out a little bit more about the subject but also about the e-learning course if you want to go straight to the e-learning course then it would be uh, www.coachingedgeuk.com
0: coaching edge uk.com we'll make sure we get these links in the description on the podcast as well so that they, they link through thanks rob come on now i recently had a chat with the uh, amazing katie wilson um who's our derbyshire ladies captain she's just got a fantastic story a, a fantastic outlook on tennis and life really and She's at, at Nottingham Trent University. She was she was telling me how good and university tennis is in the UK now, which I guess is testament to the work your good self and the team are going, uh, are doing. Um, you're heavily involved in it now, UK university tennis, Alastair. What, what's what's your role?
1: So I manage uh, UK university tennis three days a week for the LTA. Uh, so that's where two days a week I do my own stuff, Momentum, Coach Education. But three days a week is managing uh, all aspects of university tennis, so all the universities, um, the, the funding packages we give them, the, um, I guess, the funding outcomes we're looking for, the areas for development, working with them to promote it. And I'm also a great Britain team manager for the student team when we go away and we compete internationally. So again, back to that favourite bit of coaching in matches, in the chair, advising at the change of ends.
0: What a brilliant role! It just sounds amazing. I love it. I'm just going to dwell on that for a minute. <laughs> Come on, now then. So, university-wise, where's your your uh, thoughts on where it stands now in terms of of standards? You know, say we've got, yeah, you know, or if there's people listening and they're either around the age where they're thinking about university, or their parents of children who are think, starting to, you know, think about university. Why should they be thinking about university sport in the UK?
1: I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's just a great opportunity to continue playing tennis, and you've got some fantastic facilities. I think everybody would know about our leading universities. They probably would have played there or been there: Loughborough, Bath, Stirling, Exeter, Nottingham, uh, Leeds, uh, Beckett. You would, you would have been there. You would know them. There's a a Thriving scene. We've got the National League at the top end, which is full of players with it, uh, you know, who are winning British tours, semis of British tours, ATP ranked, WTA ranked. Uh, so there's a, it's a very high level at the top, but also throughout the teams, as you would have heard from Katie, uh, all the way down, there's some great team competitions. You can be individual national champion of the country, you can be team uh, knockout. Champion of the country, you can be team league champion of the country, but you can also be team league champion or knockout champion at your level. There's 360 teams throughout the country playing every Wednesday afternoon, training for it, training for the matches uh, as a team, playing as a team all the way through October through March. Um, Twelve thousand fixtures, something like that, and I think that team aspect of it is like a a county week, but better because it's every Wednesday. And, that, and there's another match coming. And it's one of the few places probably in tennis where there is a fixture list. And that's what I think we're always missing in tennis, a fixture yeah, list.
0: Brilliant. It's it's something I want to learn more about, actually. You know, you know I went over to America to play and ke- came back. And and actually, I mean, I played competitively and everything, but it, it was just so much higher level in America having been there and of course that was a I, that's why I went there you know it wasn't when I went to Oxford Brookes University it wasn't set up to be a tennis place it was something you know that I did but yeah. it, it sounds as though UK universities are, have have made a lot of progress in, in their tennis offering.
1: Yeah we've made huge progress in the last seven eight years and I think when I began the role I persuaded the LTA to give me five days a year And that's gone to that went to 40 days a year, two days a week, three days a week. So the increasing investment from the LTA has been fantastic. The investment from the universities themselves has been, you know, we're talking about millions of pounds of investment by the universities who've seen the opportunity that tennis gives, not just for playing, but for developing your workforce skills, your transferable skills, uh, for competition, for everybody to be included. So there's a whole package there. And on the top end, we have gone from no players with a WTA or ATP ranking British players, I mean, in the system in 2013. Um, and no medals won for 10 years internationally to uh, last year before lockdown, I think it's 21 players with ATP or WTA ranking or increase their WTA ATP ranking whilst at university, uh, British players, and 10 medals uh, beginning in 2015, uh, as far as beating america beating the top american college team in 2017 uh and uh a variety you know in the two main competitions the world university games and the unofficial world champs if you like the bmp paris bat which is held in france
0: so what a what a story it's a success story isn't it i mean it's something i'm going to pay closer attention to i've just become hooked on uh i following our, our juniors who, are, who have gone over to the States and, and seeing how they're going on. And, you know, undoubtedly, it's, it's an amazing setup there. But actually, it seems like there is, uh, you know, I should be paying a bit more closer attention to the, the UK university scene as well.
1: I mean, I think it, nobody's going to say it's not a great opportunity in the States, but it's equally a great opportunity here. And the States is not for everybody. And if it is, there's also the opportunity to carry on playing back here with postgraduate degree. So if you've been to the States, you can only play for four years before you're done in terms of those rules and regulations. You can come back here and play another two years on a part-time master's degree as well. So there's lots of journeys through it. That's increasingly happening, Dan Little. Uh, Jack Findle Hawkins, um, Ella Taylor at Loughborough, uh, Jack and Dan at uh, Nottingham, and you know there's, a, there's an increasing amount of people who are coming back from the states thinking, yeah, this is a great opportunity to carry on playing at a high level.
0: Great, just brilliant. Come on, it sounds great. I mean, I'm going to research it more. Now you, you mentioned county tennis. I okay, we you, we haven't got that much time left, but I've got to ask you about this. I think pretty much you know your good self. Your lads, Andy and Johnny, your wife Joanne has also played county tennis. Pretty amazing to start with, and you know how important is is county tennis. How in, in our in our country?
1: I think it's I think it's the absolute um, pinnacle for a lot of people. It's the core for a lot of people. It's where people play who are dedicated. It's where people play uh, who are, I guess, the backbone of British tennis to a degree. Um, I think the. Yeah, it's fantastic that we've all played. Um, I think we've all enjoyed every time we've played. Yeah, every time is an experience with the team, whether it's winter county cup, summer county cup, vets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and yeah, I think if if you look back on all your tennis memories, a lot of them, if you've been lucky enough to play for county, come from county.
0: So true, the backbone of British tennis. I absolutely love that, Mister Hyam. I think that's that's what it is, isn't it? And I think that's where you know, as you see, hopefully our juniors, you know, we can really keep the, the link strong between the county and the juniors coming through it and, and for it to be something for them to aspire to, because once they're on that journey, they will see the incredible adventures that they have and the friends that they meet. Yeah, 100%. Come on. Now then, last couple of questions for you. Um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated to ask you this one because you've been in so many different roles across our, our wonderful sport but if you were put in charge of world tennis for a day what one new amazing initiative would you introduce
1: for a day and somebody else the next day <laughs> okay um, i think i think i'm going to go for equalizing out the prize money i think it's really really important you can if you look at golf people can make a good living cricket football it's so hard in tennis to make a good living it's only the top few and i think we have to find a way of really extending that out. So uh, a lot more people. And I think that move instigated by the ITF to try and have fewer professional tennis players a few years ago um, didn't work out. And they wanted less, but actually we know that if somebody is playing full-time and they then go into coaching, there is a, I I guess they are the centre of attention in the club where they're at. So if you're talking pure high-performance level, you might think it's not that great to be 700 in the world or 1,500 in the world or be playing on the British tour. But to the punters in all the clubs, it really is. And actually, it also really is. And I remember Helen Reesby getting to about 700 in the world, 800 in the world. And I was doing the Dovedale Dash in your area, Rob.
0: Yeah. And I
1: was sitting with a friend of mine and... uh, Sherilyn her name is and I said what she said oh, how's that little girl Helen getting on well, She said, she's a bit older now and she's um, she's doing all right she's 700 in the world I mean you won't see her at Wimbledon uh, yet but and she said 700 well that's amazing I said well yeah it's pretty good she says Alistair we've just finished 770th 70th in the Dovedale Dash to be 700 <laughs> in the world amazing
0: I love that story. I love that. And it's so true. I spoke to Tom Rushby about this, you know, Tom, who was number one in in just about every age group, he reached the the semis of uh, Wimbledon juniors playing with Andy Murray. He uh, was top 10 in the country. Now, if you are a top 10 footballer in our country, if you're a top 10 golfer in our country, you can, boy, oh boy, can you make a living out of that sport. And at tennis, it's tricky. And, and I think that it's such a great idea that if, if we can keep people in the game longer and give them more of an opportunity to see if they can go up those rankings a bit because they can make a game, they shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be. The thing that wise, it shouldn't have to be just a rich man's sport, rich woman's sport at that point, because it's only those who have got the funding that can keep playing. You know, it should be about talent. And if they could equalise the pay a bit, I think it's, 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 I really hope i don't know how it can happen but i really hope it, it will happen
1: there's enough money at the top of the game isn't it to spread it down i mean i think that's the obvious way um and and for all the people who are trying to play at high level not quite getting a world ranking getting a world ranking if the members of the public see them play they can't understand how good they are and they're not playing at wimbledon because you can't really see the difference between somebody, if, if to the uninformed eye, you can't see yeah. the difference between a top county player and somebody who's playing at Wimbledon. And, you know, occasionally, I think we get a glimpse of how high that level is by Johnny Murray winning Wimbledon.
0: Yeah.
1: Or by, uh, who's a very good county player and yeah. obviously went on to be a lot more, or by Andy Murray and Jamie Murray showing up at county week. And not having that easier time of it, uh, if you remember. Yeah. So, Joe Salisbury, who was in uh, our student team in 2015, again, yes, See, week that same year, and not, you know, not smashing it completely. And then, obviously, almost world number one last year. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not that big a difference, and I think we need to that needs to be recognised in the prize money. So that would be my for a day. That will be my one change that I would make. Love it
0: great change great change and uh, another question we ask everybody if you could go for a drink with anyone alive or dead who would it be and why
1: that's uh, so so difficult i mean I, I probably my answer is i go out with the people i know well already i'm very lucky to know a lot of interesting characters yourself included you know i'd rather be having yeah. a beer with them than probably anybody <laughs> famous because the trouble i've been lucky to meet some famous people and, and some people who are your heroes, really, as you grow up. I've been really lucky to meet. And you spend a few minutes with them. But what can you do? You can't, it's a, it's a one-way thing, isn't it? They don't know who you are. So you can either try to say something insightful and interesting that you know, shows that you're interested in them and you may sound like a stalker uh, or, <laughs> or, or like you're trying to impress. Or you just do the small talk thing and it's just small talk. Whereas with your mates, you can, you can, you know, you've got stories and shared history, haven't you? So it's much better. But, but if I had to choose somebody, I think I would go, I would go comedy. Probably. I think uh, Victoria Wood would be fun to be out with. I think, uh, you know, Michael Palin, any of those guys would be great to be out with. I think, um, if you go way back, Shakespeare, try and see if you spoke in the same way you wrote, that'll be interesting.
0: You know, Alistair, that so that was when I was asked this question, I mean, firstly, just to say mates, oh, crave that so much right now. More than, more than meeting Shakespeare. You know, give me the option of, I don't know, my mates from school and and meeting up with Shakespeare. I'll set my mates from school. But no. but yeah, when I was asked that question in an interview years and years ago for a job to be a radio presenter, um, I said Shakespeare because Shakespeare, in his own time, was actually a bit of a rock and roll star. He was a bit like a Liam Gallagher, yeah. and uh, so that was the answer I gave way back when. Yeah, but yeah. I'll take the mates. I'll take the mates. <laughs> man hey well well listen Alistair thank you so so much for your time it's been fascinating and I've loved loved our chat it's been brilliant catching up and uh...
1: thanks Rob thanks for inviting me much appreciated
0: take care